All right, good morning. Let's open our Bibles or go on your iPad or iPhone or Droid to uh, Jeremiah chapter 11. We're studying through the entire book of Jeremiah. It's what we like to do is go through books uh, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We find ourselves in Jeremiah chapter 11. We're going to begin in verse 18 and read through uh, chapter 12, verse 17. As we do, the topic we're going to find there is that when a weary Jeremiah feels as if he is in a race against footmen, God tells him that he will soon have to run against horses. And so the title of our message, A Horse is a Horse, of course, of course, (laughs) until you're empowered to race the horse. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the word of God. In it, Lord, as a mirror, we see not just ourselves, but we see Jesus Christ reflected there dimly, darkly to a certain extent because uh, we're in a fallen world and we retain these bodies of flesh. But nevertheless, Lord, by the ministry of your spirit who is within us and in our midst, you can bring to clarity some things about Jesus today about his love for us that sent him from heaven to earth to the cross and back to heaven, Lord, so that we might be saved, that we might understand that he is the resurrection and the life and that everyone comes to the Father only through him, that you administer that grace today, Lord, to hearts that maybe don't know you, that they would see, Lord, that there is a God, that he loves them and that he came and died for them and rose from the dead. And for the rest of us, Lord, that are walking with you, We've come hungry, Lord, to understand something about you that would help us in our walk and in our daily ministry. And so bring that, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all who agreed said, amen. My favorite scene from the movie Jaws has to be when Quint and Hooper are comparing their wounds and scars, each of them trying to outdo the other. It's a classic. At one point, Sheriff Brody lifts his shirt to reveal an appendectomy scar. It's funny because he realizes in that moment that what he considers suffering is so much less than what his companions have experienced. And by the way, a bit of movie trivia for you, uh, it was really Roy Scheider's appendectomy scar uh, from his uh, appendectomy. Now, all of us collect wounds and scars as we go through life. Some of them are physical, some of them are emotional. Some of them, quite obviously, are worse than others. I would respectfully submit that even the worst of my scars and even yours are or anyone's for that matter, they're like an appendectomy compared to the sufferings of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. No one ever suffered as much as he did. When you consider that he left heaven for earth, that alone puts Jesus in a separate category, not a category that is untouchable, but one that puts him apart in terms of suffering. And then he knew isolation and loneliness more than anyone ever. His human experiences were those of danger, poverty, loss, obscurity. He was derided as an illegitimate son. Let's just summarize it all by remembering Jesus was called a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. That was kind of his motto as far as some people were considered. They thought, oh, Jesus, that's that man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. Now, of course, his suffering was immense leading up to the cross and then unfathomable 
upon the cross as he took upon himself the sins of the world. We are going to suffer. It's the human condition in a fallen world. Jesus Christ's greater suffering provides us a context in which to experience our own suffering. We are told, in fact, we are promised that through suffering, we can experience a fellowship with Jesus that is impossible without pain. Our tendency, all of us, is to want to withdraw from suffering. All the while, Jesus is seeking to draw us deeper into what is called the fellowship of his sufferings. Jeremiah has a moment like that in our text. He wanted to withdraw from his suffering. God would tell him he was drawing him deeper into it. I'm going to organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, your tendency is to withdraw from further suffering, while number two, God's tenderness is to draw you into the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's take a look at Jeremiah and ourselves with our tendency to withdraw. Now, God made known to Jeremiah that a plot had been devised against him. You know, Jeremiah is going around. He's preaching the word of God. He's involved in the revival under King Josiah. The people are involved in all kinds of idolatry and adultery and sin of every kind. Uh, But because Josiah is king, he's able to uh, force them to follow the Lord. And Jeremiah is preaching. And then God says, now, Jeremiah, you don't know this, but there's some people who want to kill you. And so in verse 18, now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for you showed me their doings. I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter. I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit and let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name may be remembered no more. And so there was a plot against Jeremiah to destroy the tree, that was a reference to him, and thereby destroy its fruit, a reference to anyone who might be affected by his message. It's clear that it was a plot to kill him. Jeremiah did what we tend to do when faced with a threat. He immediately called upon the Lord to deliver him from his enemies. And so verse 20, but O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have revealed my cause. And so Jeremiah appealed to God's righteousness as the one, the only one, who can see the hearts of all men and therefore mete out proper justice. He probably thought that when God revealed this plot against him, that God was letting him know he would overcome it. I mean, after all, why tell Jeremiah about it unless he was, you know, kind of, hey, Jeremiah, I've discovered a plot against you, and and I'm going to deal with it. You go on preaching the word. Well, God does promise to intervene. He does promise to take care of these people. He promises to judge them. He says in verse 21, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life. Anathoth was Jeremiah's hometown. He said, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall even die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. All right, amen. You want to plot against God's servant? You are messing with God. Thanks, Lord. I mean, isn't that what you want to hear? You find out that there's some plot against you, there's some trial determined against you, something's happening, you cry out to the Lord, and the Lord says, absolutely, I'm gonna deal with that. I'm gonna take care of that, 
in a righteous way. Uh, in Jeremiah's case, he says, I'm gonna, all those guys are dead men. They're the walking dead, and uh, I'm even going to judge their children. It's so bad. Jeremiah got up every day and went right to the obituaries in his local paper, <laughs> thinking that God was going to act upon his word. He knew who the men of Anathoth were that were going to say, okay, Lord, you know, when are you, you know, I, okay, yeah, nothing there. Okay, I'll, I'll get up tomorrow. And day after day after day, nothing changed. Well, that's not true because we'll see in a moment, if anything, those who were plotting to kill him seemed to actually prosper all the more. They seemed to be bringing forth fruit. And so it began to concern the young prophet. God said, Jeremiah, plot against your life. I'm revealing it to you. I'm gonna kill all the guys that are involved with it. And then nothing happens. And so Jeremiah, beginning in chapter 12, says, righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet, can I talk with you about your judgments Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? You have planted them. Yes, they've taken root. In other words, instead of judging them, God has planted them. They've taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. You are near their mouths, but far from their minds. But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. You have tested my heart towards you. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? The birds and the beasts are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. And so Jeremiah, as is extremely human, he gets up one day. There's nobody in the obituaries. He says, God, I know you're righteous, but what are you doing? I am righteous. My heart is pure. And these people, not only they're not dead, as I suppose they would be, they continue to plot against me, and they're prospering and bringing forth fruit. And so Jeremiah expressed a common confusion that we all at one time or another will have. Since God is righteous, why do the wicked seem to prosper? Why are they so happy? While in the meantime, God's own people suffer at their hands. One theologian said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith. Now, I'm not sure if that is absolutely true, but I do know that it's extremely common when you try and share the Christian message or share about Jesus Christ with somebody that a, a, an immediate fallback position that non-believers have is, well, if there's a God and a God of love, then why is there suffering in the world, huh? I <laughs> got you there. There's a whole, by the way, there is an entire branch of theology called theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, that's dedicated to defending both God's love and his omnipotence in view of human suffering. It is a, I don't want to call it a problem, but it's something people struggle with. If there's a God of love, why is there suffering? And so if you want to study that, you can, and I'll give you a hint, um, It depends on where you're coming from and what your basic theology is in terms of how you're going to answer that question. But Christians have struggled with this. Uh, In fact, Christians are the first ones to struggle with it. It's Jeremiah is struggling with this. It isn't the wicked that's struggling. Jeremiah says, hey, God, you know, I think you're righteous and I think you're loving and I think you're omnipotent, so what are you doing? And so this is a, a question. Now, I might be naive when it comes to the subject, I may be unlearned, but I don't think the answer is all that hard. The big answer, the big answer is captured in one small word, and the word is sin. 
Because our first parents chose to sin, humanity fell and with it suffering of all sorts entered God's creation. And if you read the Bible, you see that God is doing a lot to deal with that. Primarily, he came into that fallen world, took upon himself a body of flesh, died for the sins of the world to redeem you, lost humanity, and all of creation ultimately. And so there's something going on. There's, there's a plan. But the problem is sin. Now, Jeremiah, however, he wasn't looking for the big picture answer. He didn't enroll at West Anathoth University in a class on theodicy. He wanted to comprehend in his own life how God could allow him to suffer as a servant of God right then in the 6th century B.C. and let the wicked who plotted against him prosper. C.S. Lewis, whose attempt at theodicy is articulated in a book called The Problem of Pain, made this insightful statement. He deals with the situation in a scholarly manner, but then he brings it home when he says, you might like to know how I behave when I'm experiencing pain rather than writing books about it. You need not guess, I will tell you, I am a great coward. And so we can talk about this philosophically, we can have answers, and there are answers, but it still boils down to, Lord, what are you doing in my life? I'm a coward. We are all great cowards with respect to the problem of our personal pain. And I say that with compassion. I don't say it as a rebuke. Suffering hurts, it wounds, it scars, and it's made so much worse when we look around and see the non-believer, even the wicked non-believer, prospering and experiencing happiness. God told Jeremiah he would, in fact, deal with the men of Anathoth who plotted against him. God just didn't tell Jeremiah when he was going to do it, nor did he promise to deliver Jeremiah from out of their hands. It's the timing that bothers us. You and I know that the Lord is coming back. He's promised to come back. There are eight times as many references to the second coming of Jesus Christ in the Bible than there are to his first coming. It's a certainty. And we know how everything's going to end. We've read the Bible cover to cover. We've seen the book of the Revelation. We've seen the heavens open and Jesus come back uh, with the hordes of heaven and the angels of heaven and establish his kingdom and then judge finally. And we've seen eternity. We know how it's all going to end. But it's in the present that we're having trouble. And that's what he basically told Jeremiah. He goes, Jeremiah, this is, I'm gonna kill all those guys. But it's, it's, gonna, it's gonna happen, you understand, when the Babylonian armies come in the final siege. In the meantime, you're in for 40 years of trouble. 40 years of faithfulness, 40 years of trouble. And that's the real thing we struggle with. Why doesn't God deliver me when it's clear that he can and that he loves me. Are you sure of that? Do you understand that? Because some non-believers, that's their answer. The classic unbeliever says, either God loves me or he's omnipotent, but it can't be both, because if he loved me and was omnipotent, he would deliver me from all of my trouble. He wouldn't allow me to suffer. But the Christian who reads the Bible says, God loves me and he is omnipotent but that has nothing to do with whether or not he delivers me from my suffering and ends it or whether I have to endure it. And that's because getting delivered from our suffering is not always as valuable in the long run as enduring it with the Lord. 
Corey Ten Boom, the author of Hiding Place, uh, her and her family, Dutch Christians who hid Christians during World War II from the Nazis, no stranger to intense suffering, once said this, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Interesting. Have you ever prayed that? Maybe you won't ever again. <laughs> Jesus, show me that you're all I need. And the Lord says, well, Gene, I'm gonna have to take everything away from you if you really want to see that I'm all you need because you have too many things. You have too many possessions. You have too many people. You have too many priorities. This essentially could be the summary of the book of Job. God took away everything he had except for his relationship with him. In our fallen world, God has chosen to use suffering to our advantage, trusting us to understand that the sufferings of this present time cannot be compared to the glories that will be revealed later in heaven. And that brings us into God's tenderness to draw you into the fellowship of his sufferings. God's answer to Jeremiah was to first reveal to him that, or or was rather to reveal to him that he too suffered along with his prophet. But first, God tells Jeremiah that things were about to get worse. In verse five, if you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them even though they speak smooth words to you. God had revealed to Jeremiah that there was a plot against him, the men of Anathoth. Now he tells him it's not just the men of Anathoth, your own family members want to kill you. They're saying nice, they're playing nice with you, they're saying nice things. Oh, isn't that cute? Look at young Jeremiah preaching for the Lord. But they want to kill you and they're part of the plot. That's intense. The Lord compared Jeremiah's present suffering to a race and to a journey. If Jeremiah thought running with footmen was difficult, if he could look at his life and say, Lord, I feel like I'm in a race, then God says, well, just wait until shortly you're gonna be racing against horses, comparatively speaking. And if Jeremiah thought that he was walking through a land of peace and and having difficulty, well, just wait until it was more like a floodplain when those floodgates opened and he was caught in the middle of that. In plain language, God is telling his faithful servant that this is just the beginning of his suffering. Things were going to get much worse. Something to notice, however, in the projection of his sufferings. There's a promise. It's easy to overlook because all we read and all we hear is there's more suffering coming. But God uses this really, these two really precious figures, and if you think about them for a moment, There's a profound promise in them for suffering, but also just in general for the Christian life. Because God is telling Jeremiah, not only are you going to have to contend with horses, not only is the flood coming, but you're going to be empowered to do that. You're running with footmen now, but in a little while when things get worse, people are gonna look at you and think that you're keeping up with horses. Right now it seems bad, but people are gonna look at you and think you're walking through the floodplain and that you alone aren't able to do that. In other words, people are gonna look at you, Jeremiah, and wonder what is going on, how can he do it? 
Who could endure that kind of stress and suffering? In the Bible, this is described as sharing in the fellowship of Jesus Christ's sufferings. The Apostle Paul, himself not a stranger to suffering, said, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So Paul understood that his sufferings could be shared with Jesus Christ in a fellowship in which he found the power of the resurrection to rise above them, to go through them, and to accomplish mighty things. One example from the life of the Apostle Paul. In one city, he is stoned to death. Stoned to death. Not on medical marijuana, but by stones. (laughs) By real stones, pelting his body. And then they drag him outside the city limits, and they leave him for dead. God miraculously heals him, And he says, let's go back to that city and preach the gospel. That is the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Not so much just raising him from the dead. That's cool. Although if you're Paul, I think he would have rather stayed dead because you're with the Lord. And that's always, in fact, in one place he said, I'd rather be with the Lord. But the power to say, would you go back to that same city? Excuse me? Aren't you the guy we just stoned to death? Yeah. I haven't, I didn't get to my conclusion. I had a three-point message, and I'm still in point two. I have some great alliteration I want to share with you about that. Where's the altar call in that, you know? So anyway, Paul knew about that. There is both empowering and intimacy in shared experiences. That's why is it not that people are attracted to and helped by joining groups where the other members have had similar experiences? In walking with the Lord, if you want to experience empowering by him and intimacy with him, you're going to have to share experiences of suffering. As I indicated earlier, all of your suffering in total will never be much more than an appendectomy scar compared to what Jesus has suffered for you, but it is nevertheless real suffering, and he will be with you in it and through it. Let me put it another way. No one is going to look at you and think something otherworldly, something supernatural is going on if you only always run against other footmen and if your daily walk seems to be relatively peaceful like everyone else's. The Lord uses the fallen world in which we find ourselves until his return to highlight a life that can be like what, what a life can be like dedicated to sharing in the fellowship of his sufferings. Here's another angle to consider because I think this illustration can, uh, it can apply to suffering, but it can just apply to your Christian life in general. When you look back upon your Christian life, you, we're in the future, or some of us have been Christians for a long time now. If you look back over your Christian life, are you going to be content to say, All I did was race against other footmen. In other words, I kept my life as comfortable and clean as possible. I'd never really ventured out by faith. It was like a race, you know, and sometimes I got weary. Sometimes I pulled ahead. Sometimes I fell behind, but I raced in in the pack. Or... I, I was, you know, it was always peaceful. There was never any flood. I didn't want to, you know, venture out into the floodplain at all. Don't you want to look back and see God empowering you to live beyond your natural talents and abilities? Here's the worst thing that can happen to you as a Christian. Well, not the worst thing, but here's a bad thing that can happen. Let's say you're involved in some ministry. You're serving the Lord in some way. 
You know what's terrible? What's terrible is if people look at you and say, I can see you doing that because you're really talented in that area. You really have a lot of gifts in that area. Uh, you're the perfect guy. You're the perfect gal to be doing this because of your nature and your character. I can see why God needed you to, to do this. And you know what all you've said to that person is that they've never done anything but walk with footmen, run with footmen, and hung out in a peaceful land. What you want to be said of you is, how'd you do that? How, how did you get there? What are you doing? Because you're an idiot. <laughs> Were you educated to do that? No. Were you trained to do it? Did you learn how to do that? Did, you know, what, what's going on in your life? Because I, don't, I just don't see it. You're... One of my favorite things that's happened in the last two years, there was a, a guy, he's not here today, but he wouldn't mind me sharing this story, but he started coming to our men's fellowship, and Gino teaches our men's fellowship on Wednesday mornings, does a great job with it, I, everybody gets ministered to, and I just sit there, and for a month, this guy thought I was the janitor. <laughs> it was the greatest thing ever. I think it's Fantastic. I love for people not to, and then when they find out that I'm the pastor, they think, you? Really? Well, at least you must have went to school somewhere. I go, well, you know, I have degrees that I hate from the secular university, but, you know, I didn't, didn't really have any education. Well, what are you doing? What qualifies you? You're an idiot. Hey, praise the Lord. No, actually, I'm the janitor. And, and, you know, it, and that's just a tiny thing. But that's, isn't that what you want? Don't you want somebody to look at you and say, I don't know how you're doing this. You must be a spirit-filled Christian because there's no human way I can explain that. And so if, if, all you, if all I ever do is what I'm trained to do, what I'm, gifted, or what I'm comfortable doing, what I've learned to do, I need to step out into something that terrifies me. Now, God, he'll bring me out there, you know, he'll say, Gene, follow me over here. Let's do this. Let's do that. And I need to be in some dimension where I have to trust God in order for people to look and say, man, you, you're kind of, you're running with horses now. You're getting through the floodplain. Now, in these remaining verses, God's going to describe his own sufferings at the hands of his disobedient people. And it reveals a tenderness and a vulnerability even of God being hurt. Verse 7, I have forsaken my house, I have left my heritage, I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her, her enemies. My heritage is to me like a lion in the forest, it cries out against me, therefore I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture, the vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field, bring them to devour. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard, they have trod my portion underfoot, they have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Here God employs three figures to describe his hurt at the hands of his beloved nation. To him they'd become like a lion that you encounter in the forest, roaring out or crying out against God, provoking him by their sin. And so he has to hate them, which in this context simply means he has to treat them uh, as a hostile entity. Judah was likened to an odd-colored bird which the other birds pick apart a reference to the fact that because they didn't properly represent God to the other nations, the other nations were going to pick them apart. Judah, a vineyard, God's vineyard, but they had allowed themselves to be breached and trampled down and destroyed. There's many illustrations of Israel and Judah as God's vineyard, and here they just they say, hey, we don't want to be God's vineyard. Just anybody wants to come in, take our grapes, and trample us down. God is here really describing his grief, his suffering that is brought about by Judah's sin. 
Now, he's going to discipline them and eventually restore them. Uh, We see that in the remaining verses, verse 14. Thus says the Lord against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Then it shall be after I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them. I will bring them back, everyone to his heritage, everyone to his land. And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. If they don't obey, I'll utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. This is God's long-term plan, looking beyond what was happening in the 6th century, looking beyond our own day and age, to the time when he establishes Israel on earth in the thousand-year reign of Christ. He says, I'm going to bring all the Jews back to their land and each inheritance, each tribe to their own inheritance. And the Gentile nations who believe Israel and follow Israel and believe in me, I'm going to bless, and the ones that don't, I'm going to destroy. And so God's saying, hey, I've got this under control. There's suffering now. There's sin in the world. It's a fallen world. I'm using that. I'm maintaining that. I'm overruling that. You know, I'm not, you know, completely canceling it out because I have this overarching, overruling plan, and Israel is a part of it. Meantime, lots of suffering is on tap, including for you and I as God's beloved saints. At the beginning of his career as a Christian, Jesus said of the Apostle Paul, he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then the Lord said, I'm going to show him how many things he must suffer for my sake. James, in, one of his, in his letter, excuse me, told us, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as your example of suffering Paul was clear and to the point when he told young Pastor Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. God's on record. He's not holding back. There are many, many, many verses, promises for suffering. You could have a whole promise box filled with verses about suffering. Not very popular in Christian bookstores, but it's true. Whatever your theodicy, whatever your argument for how an omnipotent God of love can nevertheless allow suffering, your suffering is that you may know Jesus and the fellowship of his sufferings and therefore the power of his resurrection. The shared experience of suffering with him that causes intimacy and produces empowering is invaluable. Think of it like this. In some suffering you have experienced... Were you not helped by sharing it with someone who could understand your pain having gone through it themselves? Or perhaps your situation was that you never found such a person, but you desired to find one. I've I've heard that many times over the years where people will say something to the effect of, I was going through this terrible sorrow, this terrible situation, And no one understood, no one came forward, no one said anything, no one did anything. And you know what, that's that's true, that happens. And it's, it's very sad. I only bring that up to prove the point that all of us understand the power of shared experience in our suffering especially. But we need to take a step back and realize what I'm really saying today is that that person is always Jesus Christ. I understand the value of another human being. 
And I'm not, I don't want, I want to be careful not to belittle that or come across as uncompassionate. I know I can be uncompassionate. <laughs> it's who I am. And I'm working on it. But the person that you're looking for is Jesus Christ, who said, I've left heaven for earth. I'm the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. I may not have experienced every particular wound or scar or hurt that you've experienced, but there's a general sense, an overriding sense, that I've experienced suffering on a level that you can never comprehend. Just leaving heaven for earth, I'm the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and I did it all, Gene, for you. I just didn't do it. It, just, it didn't just happen to me. I didn't get into bad you know, luck or any. I did it on purpose, with purpose for you so that I could die on the cross for you and rise from the dead and ascend into heaven for you. And so why don't you and I deal with your suffering? Why don't you share the fellowship of my sufferings and quit thinking that you're running with footmen and they're wearying you and realize that I have prepared you to outrun horses. And for people to look at your life and think, that guy is faster than a speeding bullet. Able to jump over tall buildings with a single bound because he knows the Lord Jesus Christ and shares in the fellowship of his sufferings. I know that in your heart of hearts, if you're a Christian, you want to run against horses. And so just turn to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray.